created live on Fireside. The following program was recorded live on Fireside Chat. If you'd like to participate in these chats, join us every Thursday at noon Eastern Time at firesidechat.com slash scottmonty. Have you ever admired a leader and wondered just what it is that makes her who she is? How he came to embrace the things that advanced him? Welcome to Timeless Leadership, where we look at the principles that define success. This is a show for leaders at all stages of their careers who aspire to understand what it truly means to be a leader. And who is a leader? John Adams said, If your actions inspire others to dream more, learn more, do more, and become more, you are a leader. Together, we'll explore key principles, not only in the sense of the fundamentals, but also in the ethical sense. The habits, character traits, and virtues that form the backbone of leadership. Principles that are just as relevant and essential in the 21st century as they were in the 1st century. This is Timeless Leadership. Well, hello and welcome to Timeless Leadership, the show where we talk about the principles and virtues that accompany successful and admirable leaders. I'm Scott Monty. If you aren't yet subscribed to the Timeless and Timely newsletter where I regularly write about these topics, please do so at scottmonty.com. And if you haven't given us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts where the produced version of this show lives, please go over there and check that out. It helps other people find the show. This week we're talking about resilience. You know, we we all run into difficulties in our lives and in our careers. And, you know, there, there are challenges that perhaps we don't anticipate. And when these roadblocks pop up, we are judged by how we respond. Now, I'm sure you've seen the kind of leader who is persistent and determined. They have what some people might call Grit, that sense of toughness as they power through. It makes me think of Gritty, the aptly named mascot of the Philadelphia Flyers, who is the personification of this kind of feisty fierceness. But here's the thing about grit. Grit develops as you go. It's kind of like a callus. Grit comes from without, from an external source. Now, grit isn't the source of endurance and resilience. I think joy is, and joy comes from within. There's a certain set of values that leaders have that makes resilience possible, values that are deeply woven into their personality. Cat Cole is known as a connected, creative, conscious, community-building capitalist and coffee-loving chronic learner. This not only describes her as a person, it describes the philosophy she applies to business, brands, and life. She's a young global leader of the World Economic Forum, a past member of the United Nations Global Entrepreneurs Council, and was featured on CBS's Undercover Boss. She was also named to Fortune's 40 Under 40. As COO and president of Focus Brands, 
the owner, franchisor, and operator of global limited service food brands. She led the company's seven brands. Cinnabon, Auntie Anne's, Moe's, Schlotzky's, McAllister's, Carvel, and Jamba, with 6,800 operations globally. She's formerly president of Cinnabon and past group president of Focus Brands. Prior to her roles with Focus, Kat was vice president of training and development at Hooters. Kat dropped out of college at 20. She later received her MBA from Georgia State University. Her journey from restaurant hostess at 17, executive by 26, president by 32, and investor by 35 is one of resilience and heart. Kat, welcome to Timeless Leadership. Thanks for having me. I, my gosh, I don't know where to begin after, after that intro. There's so much to unpack there. What's the thing you like to tell people about yourself when they first meet you? You know, one of the things that I, you know, I like to share one when I first meet people, I don't like to talk about myself. <laughs> um, I would much rather talk about them. Uh, but if people ask, I would typically first talk about my family. Tell me about them. Uh, I am married to the love of my life. We have two kids that are toddlers, 21 months and three and a half years and just have, you know, such a fun story. We, uh, my husband and I met, had a one night stand. So we thought, and then uh, started proposing to each other two weeks later. And then a few months later, he uh, left to row across the Atlantic ocean in a rowboat. We got closer through the row. When he landed, we tattooed our rings. A few months later, we got married at Burning Man. A few months after that, we made our first baby, uh, who we named Ocean aptly, uh, and our honeymoon in Africa. And, uh, and then life has just been a wild ride since. So it's just full of intentionality and creativity and adventure. Uh, and, you know, very grateful for the bonds that tie us. That, that is incredible. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, oh, you know, it's your typical family story. It's not. It's anything but. So, what what do you attribute? <clears throat> excuse me. The um, that that incredible what I perceive as energy behind uh, that relationship. It's a few things. Uh, it is a combination of both of us being mature in our lives emotionally. We were both in long term relationships previously, so had a good sense of what we wanted, what we didn't want. Uh, and it brought us to a place of intentionality about the relationship itself. We were both committed to being as good or better at home than we were at work. And that's a pretty powerful place to be mentally and emotionally that brings us to shared commitment around our, uh, around our relationship. And, uh, and then eventually once we had a family, you know, kids around, around the kids. Hmm. So you you said something interesting there with regard to intentionality. You said you wanted to be as good at home as you were at work. When I've, well, personally experienced it, when I've talked to other leaders who have gone through this, there, there tends to be 
trade-offs that we all have to make. I mean, it's just the reality of life, whether we're raising a family or in a committed relationship or in a high-powered job. We talk about balance, and it, it's really difficult to achieve that. It seems that one has to give while the other uh, gets, you know. Uh, so uh, talk to me about how you're able to put your all into each of those and still come out feeling like uh, you, you – you're you're in balance in some regard. I mean, one of our phrases is all in period, every day, period. And, but that doesn't mean only in on this thing. And so for us, being all in is about regularly checking in with each other to make sure, you know, if the pendulum can swing to two extremes, uh, whether it's home versus work or personal versus the family and the group, you're just trying to make sure it doesn't live too far in the extremes and that you're progressing. Uh, we like to say up and to the right. That <laughs> we're just getting, you know, on the net, you know, on the net, right? Yeah. At the end of every week or the end of every month or the end of every year, are we better than where we were before? If so, why? If not, why? And, and what do we want to do about that? So we have monthly check-ins that I've written about in my newsletters and on Instagram and on many other platforms where we ask very specific questions on the same day every month that help us stay really close in addition to good day-to-day communication. Um, and that, you know, that it's not just as good at home as we are at work. It's as good or better. Mm. And, and the thinking about all the effort we put into trying to be better at work, you know, classes and workshops and coaching and feedback and blah, blah, blah. Um, and compare that to what you do to become a better partner. And if that seems way out of whack, there's an opportunity to invest in the being a better partner at home. If you believe that that's important, and if you believe the research is true, that the most important decision you will ever make is the choice of life partner. And and I do certainly believe that. And uh, And so it's just powerful that we came to this place at the same moment mm. to feel that our personal relationship was, um, you know, to be at the forefront. And sometimes in order for me to show up as the best person for my family, I need to go do something for myself. And so I disagree that these things are at odds or that they are trade-offs. If you level up, and look at the net benefit mm. of how we put our energy into the world. And if we understand that about each other, the things we want to do as individuals, the things we want to do professionally, actually do have a role in the health of the relationship. There's no way a relationship stays its healthiest if all you do as two people is hunker down in a bunker. And, and so that leveling up out of you know the immediate need to connect or be there for each other that leveling up to see it as a whole experience in which the individuals need to be their best selves mm-hmm. to contribute best to the group, which is true in businesses, it's true in teams, it's true in families, and it's certainly true in intimate couples. Um, that leveling up is what allows us to not see it as a conflict. And so that makes it feel less painful. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't feel like a trade-off. It feels like doing something more or less um, is just the right thing for the totality of who we are. Sure. Sure. And, you know, it, it's interesting because, I mean, everybody wants to go up and to the right. And, and I think it's human nature to want, uh, in, in a, anything we do, we want to see that hockey stick curve. 
You know, we want to see immediate results. That's, again, human nature. We're, we're dissatisfied with having to wait for something. And yet, in business, in relationships, there are setbacks. You know, you, while you may not have a chart that looks like a heart attack, there, there may be some down quarters or some down weeks or months. Um, and, and you have to power through those. But as long as you're making, you know, as you said, in totality, progress up and toward the right, that's what you uh what you want and it, you know it seems like as you uh, embarked on this relationship um which clearly uh, is the most important in your life it was a hockey stick curve love at first sight and proposing marriage within a couple of weeks um how do you square that with the more kind of settled approach that you take the more i don't want to say settled but the the more mature approach that you take now um you know they're they're connected um i think it, we just we're very good at being open and vulnerable very early. And that normally takes people a matter of months or years. And we went deep fast. And so that, in fact, was a mature way to approach it. Add to the fact that I was in an 11-year relationship before that. He was in an eight-year relationship. It's not like we're kids, right? right? right. It wasn't some impulsive, <laughs> even though it was fast, and the one night stand piece of it was impulsive. The choosing to remain together, the choosing to say, hey, I don't think we want to see anyone else, even though neither of us were in that headspace. Mm. Uh, we were both out of long-term relationships. We actually desired the opposite. Freedom, exploration, all, all the good things that come from that. And so despite not expecting it, despite not wanting it, it simply felt right and we talked about it and we talked about why. And so the irony is the acting quickly on it, in fact, was a sign of maturity. Instead of saying, oh, well, this can't be as you know, wonderful as it feels, yeah. or I'm going to keep um, exploring, and we listened to our feelings and said, well, what's the harm in, in just being dedicated to this and going all in? And it just felt right. Yeah. And so... You know, however anyone wants to view it, I viewed at least my husband leaning into that, who happens to be seven and a half years younger than me. Um, I viewed that as very mature, you know, not being afraid of it, mm -hmm. not resisting it. It was quite mature and thoughtful and intentional and has simply continued to be. Yeah. Well, that that's fascinating to me because, uh, I mean, look, we, we've all gotten to a point in our lives where we've experienced enough to be able to make judgments without needing additional information. You know, I think we spend so much of our younger lives overanalyzing things or making mistakes in a certain direction. By the time we get to a certain age, um, we will have learned from those things, or at least that's the hope. And in, in one of your newsletters, you wrote about reflection. Um, you know, it, 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 it provides a powerful perspective uh, where you can see your life as chapters for review. And I think that's a really helpful way of looking at things as we look in the rearview mirror. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of reflection on a regular basis and particularly with um, the life of a busy executive where there may not be time to reflect, how do you handle something like that? And I think it just it comes down to, it's funny how we can very easily read a book about someone else or listen to a podcast about someone else and find answers or inspiration or guidance or clarity 
and it's simply another person's story. And so I realized at a very young age that there was learning to be had, you know, as I told my story, uh, which I was in the position to do from a very young age because I was leading teams, traveling around the world, opening businesses and, you know, in many countries, literally from the time I was 19. And I was always in a position to tell people about myself and build trust and connect with people. And then as I moved into the corporate world at 20 and was at a very young executive of a large company at the age of 26, you know, you find yourself in a position to talk about who you are and um, connect with people. And in, in that endeavor of telling my story, people would often react with their either clarity or realization or questions or connectivity or inspiration. And my response was always, you know, your, your story is inspiring to someone if you're good at telling it and if you're good at listening to it yourself. And so it is not that my life is my only source of learning, but for many people, I find that that is far from where they are, that they don't even pause to think about what they can learn mm. um, from their last month, their last year. And, and often when people do, they look back with, um, you know, with disdain or regret or frustration. And instead of more regularly reflecting and actually questioning success, as much as failure. It's not about what went wrong and why am I where I am? You know, what does, what path did I take that was not optimal two years ago, but just constant reflection, no matter the circumstance, um, to conduct an autopsy without blame <laughs> and, and really just think about it. And if you do it often enough, what's really powerful is you find patterns mm. and there are some patterns you want to duplicate and there are other patterns you want to disrupt. That's that's really insightful. Um, you you said they're questioning your success. Have you ever questioned your success? Oh, I, I practice that as an intention. That's my point. <laughs> is question success all the time? Do you think that's like tied in with uh, imposter syndrome, which no, we hear about? No, no, no. Maybe I should be more clear. Okay. When I say question success, I don't mean doubt success. Okay. I mean analyze success. Right. Ask yourself, why was that successful? I actually mean ask the question, not doubt it, not think, you know, it was impossible. Reflect and ask, why were sales up last week? Why do things feel so good in our relationship right now? The point is to find the things that actually are contributors versus assuming that everything going on is because you're awesome. Because often there are factors that sit outside of you that are contributing to success. And if you learn to see those and appreciate them, you can start to recognize when those factors aren't present or create more circumstances where those factors are present. For example, when I used to run restaurants, um, I remember I worked in uh, a particular restaurant and the sales were up year over year. How retail businesses evaluate their success is comp sales, year over year sales growth. And this particular location was up 20%, which is huge year over year in the restaurant world. And I remember the executive team, I was a waitress and a shift leader. And so that meant like a part-time manager and also an hourly employee. And I remember the corporate executives coming down and giving the manager a reward, a recognition, a bonus for being top, you know, top sales growth store of the quarter. And a few of us as hourly employees got together and they were like, they have no idea what a jerk this general manager is. 
And it was so interesting to see the company celebrating success that actually had nothing to do with the manager. The reality was there was a giant uptick in construction all around our location. And our restaurant was full of construction workers nonstop for months and months that we were successful despite ourselves. And the minute that construction ended, even though the same manager was there, sales tanked Mm. and no one understood. And that was such a powerful lesson. And I have many other examples personally and professionally to see that what someone may claim as their own driven success may in fact sometimes be in part or in whole due to circumstances that have very little to do with them. At the same time, some people don't give themselves credit for the success going on around them and don't recognize their role, their decisions uh, in an outcome being positive. And so the point of questioning success is that the reality is we question failure far more than success. When something's bad, everyone goes to work. Why did it happen? And who did what? And it's just a natural analysis that occurs. But what rarely happens is that we actually reflect on success. And so if you have the action and the practice of reflecting consistently, regardless, you will catch this more often and get the benefits of analyzing positive, negative, or neutral outcomes, personally or professionally. So yeah. that's what I mean by question success. I, I think that's an extremely healthy way to uh, to look at things. You know, when, when I was uh, leading uh, digital comms and social media at Ford, um, a lot of it was the, we just happened to catch the market. And, and I felt like I was one of the luckiest guys alive because I happened to be in the right place at the right time. Now, I was making recommendations strategically about what we should be doing, but you know we were we were riding the coattails of the marketplace and uh, and of uh, different external forces, and and I think that kind of awareness, self awareness, as well as situational awareness, is incredibly important, and and that does take some uh, some reflection. So, Kat, I I, I want to uh, talk a little bit about. Um, struggles you know every leader at a certain point in his or her career has obstacles they need to overcome personal struggles professional struggles and and there are some who just kind of plow through there are some who you know we admire because they they reach into a reserve with not only within themselves but from the people around them and I think that is what makes it's it's the difference between resilience and determination. To me, resilience comes from harnessing that energy both uh, within your team and within yourself. So, can you talk about a little bit about the role of resilience and how you found the strength to uh, soldier on in circumstances where maybe lesser mortals uh, may have not quite achieved as much as you did. The ability to be resilient to me is rooted in what we were just talking about, reflection and bridging that to perspective, that it is it is easier to uh, remain calm where others can't or keep going where others don't if you have a few practices, one of them being a really good understanding of the world around you. And I always remind myself if there's a tough moment at work or at home, which does not, by the way, minimize the sense of urgency or the difficulty of a moment. 
But I keep in perspective that there are many people who have done far more with less or who have dealt with far worse with far fewer resources. And what I don't do is use that mindset as a weapon to make myself feel small, depressed, lesser than. I simply use it as a reminder that I am likely capable of more than I know. And there are examples, real examples, of people who have found their way, people, teams, companies, who have found their way through moments of challenge. And so perspective is a really big helper for me. Again, some people who might not be in a very positive frame of mind, this exercise could actually be counterproductive because it could further make them feel um, lesser than and, you know, that they want to crawl into a hole and that they're defeated. So I, I really want to honor that, that not everyone is in a place where they can use this as a helpful um, technique. And so, so for me, I can use that in a healthy way. And I use that as a source of inspiration and as sometimes uh, examples that can help guide me to what I can do or how I might think of something differently. The other technique I use is this blend of, on one hand, I use that to motivate myself. On the other hand, I don't hold myself to a standard of perfection or impossible performance. Sometimes the answer is take myself out of the game, take a day off, turn off the camera on the Zoom call, get someone else to fill in, reschedule, delay. You know, sometimes that's just the answer because I'm at one of my favorite phrases. If I am going through a moment where I need to take myself out of the game is I say, I want to be able to give this the attention and the time that it deserves, and I'm not able to do that today. So let's reschedule. Mm. And I don't need to tell you why. Maybe I do because I feel a sense of trust or I feel that there are some benefits, but I know that about myself, that there is a point where if we force ourselves to keep calm and carry on, that it will be very obvious to others around that things are not okay. And then what will happen is if we don't communicate, they misread our behaviors and our tones and think it has something to do with them. Mm. In, an absence of, in an absence of communication, people come to their own conclusions, <laughs> rarely positive or good ones. <laughs> and so there's just this, again, it's this harmony. I wouldn't call it balance, but it's the sense of I can turn the dials up or down. I can be partly in, all the way in, or all the way out. And that depends on knowing myself, knowing my energy, knowing my priorities and my values, and then, of course, knowing my audience and then getting good at communicating. And that is those two things, having perspective and then having the confidence and the humility and the self-awareness and, and the thoughtfulness of others, because you understand that if you push yourself too far to do too much with others or a team, it could actually be up more harmful than if you had just pressed the pause button or delegated, or asked for help. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that that really helps me. And then I think about fail. You know, I reframe the analogy or the, you know, the word fail as an acronym, first attempt in learning. And if I'm, if what I'm experiencing is a challenge because it's something new, then that's the easiest challenge for me to navigate because it is simply the first attempt in learning. And it is part of getting into something new. Nothing is ever great when it starts. And I've got a real deep appreciation for that, that I then extend to others. And so, you know, a lot of this has to do with what is the challenge and where is it coming from? And therefore, how should you frame it and navigate it? But getting these tools in your toolbox, you know, in your mind, ready to go to work, 
depending on the situation, is incredibly helpful to navigating whatever comes your way. That's I love that acronym. That's a, that's a first one for me. So I, I am going to use that from now on. Thank you. First attempt in learning. Now, in one of your newsletters, you wrote about how to lead when you have a heavy heart. And, you know, I mean, we look around the world the last year, year and a half or so, there have been plenty of reasons, plenty of reasons to have a heavy heart uh, for a, a variety of people. And if you're willing to, I know you wrote about a very personal experience. Would you be willing to talk about that with respect to um, asking for what you need and, and taking that time and finding that resilience? Yeah, sure. I mean, there are so many examples of things that happen at a macro level, you know, in the world that we are mostly all aware of, uh, many of whom are living the experience of whether it's racism, economic challenges, um, health issues, you know, other types of macro dynamics. And, and then there are very micro, very personal things that are always going on because we're humans and can strike at any moment at anyone at any level and no frontline worker nor any executive leader is immune to these things. And, but there are very different dynamics at play, you know, in business. And so I find people hold themselves to different standards for various reasons some of them understandable, others of them are just a matter of kind of recognizing what your options are. And, and so for me, and I think what you're referring to in my newsletter, which I've talked about very openly, and I wish more people would, is I've had several miscarriages. I have two beautiful, healthy children, and I have had several miscarriages um, in, that, in that journey, in that family-building journey. And both of them um, happened uh, while I was an executive. And um, one, my second miscarriage happened in a hotel while I was traveling for a keynote speech. And then I had to go straight from there to go negotiate a huge acquisition for our company. I was running a multi-billion dollar company. And, um, and, and what was interesting is that, you know, it was a little different the second time than the first. And I share this one to just normalize that this is heavy and complicated and common, 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 um, and, and emotional and has very, brings varying degrees of emotions for different people in different circumstances. And, um, and so when it happened, and again, this was my second one, I share what I did to cope with, with this. Not that this is right for everyone, by the way. These are just the questions I asked. I believe in asking, answering, and then acting on the smartest questions. Ask, answer, act, ask, answer, act. It is, it is a theme through which you could, you know, see the lens of my, uh, of my thought process and the arc of my life and all of my frameworks are really simply a method of ask, answer, and act, which is a piece of the title of the book I'll launch next year. And, and so once it happened, I asked first, am I physically okay? Right. Most important, you know, my body and and I, this was my second time I called my doctor. Um, we talked through it. And I, the answer to that question was yes. I am physically okay. I do not need to go to a hospital. Um, I did the first time it happened. I did not this time. It is apparent what's going on. I've talked to a professional physician. And I'm physically okay. Question one, answered. So my action is I don't need to go anywhere immediately, you know, or do anything differently. Second question was, am I okay emotionally? 
And the answer was, no, but I will be. And that was my answer. And I had the perspective to know that I would be because it was the second time. And because since it was the second time, I talked to many other people who had dealt with this at various stages. And so I had a confidence and a comfort that at some point, the sadness I was feeling would minimize. And that gave me some hope, you know, makes things feel a little bit lighter. Didn't take away from my sadness, but it gave me a sense of comfort. So I don't need to, you know, book a ticket to go home. I talked to my husband. That was incredibly helpful. Okay. Ask, answer, act, decision made. Third question. Am I okay intellectually? Can my head be in the game tomorrow? What I'm here to do. And I paused and I thought, you know, for me, because I'm physically okay and I'm navigating the emotions well enough that tomorrow my keynote speech will actually feel like a a piece of normal life. It will be a welcome distraction and it will make me happy. And so I will go on and I will do it. And I did it and it was great. It felt great. So then I get on the plane and fly to my next meeting immediately that night and I cried the entire flight. Just the emotion, you know, that was evolving. It is an arc of feelings and emotions that you sometimes quiet and compartmentalize while you're choosing to do other things or if you're forced to while you have to do other things. In this case, it was a choice. And and I had a, a dinner or cocktails that night that I was supposed to attend. And when I landed in the second city, I texted my team that I was supposed to meet and I just said, hey, just landed, not feeling great, um, just going to turn in for the night. You guys have fun. So that's an example of I asked myself the same question. Am I physically okay? Yes. Am I emotionally okay? Not really. Am I intellectually able to be there? Not really. So I'm not going to go to this thing. And yes, it helps that it was an option. You know, it was like a cocktail hour. Now, was it optional? Not really. I'm the one who scheduled it. But I had other people there. And using the things in my control, I decided that I was going to cancel my role in the cocktail event. And I would have canceled it regardless, even if it was a client coming to meet me, you know, would have just said not same thing. And what was great is, you know, one, I felt comfortable enough saying, I'm not feeling great. I didn't say more than that. One of my team members who was there said, "Um, so sorry, you're not feeling well. Let us know if you want us to bring you anything uh, tonight and we'll see you tomorrow. When I woke up the next morning and I was so glad I stayed at home in the hotel, I just needed to chill and go to bed early and just be there with my feelings and talk to my husband on the phone. And when I woke up the next morning, I was feeling a little better. But what was beautiful is I woke up to a text from one of my fellow executive coworkers who said, look, I know you weren't feeling well. If you need us to kick it off without you, we've got this all good. Or do you want us to see if we can push the meeting a little later? And, and so in the, in the act of just communicating that I wasn't okay, it gave someone an opportunity to lead to step up, to help, to suggest alternatives. And I decided that I would get there a little late, but that, you know, that the show would go on. And I gave myself the room that I needed to breathe and to process so that when I was there, I was able to be present in a way that was net positive and that my colleagues were aware that there was something else going on. So if I checked my phone a little often or if I needed to step out a few times, they didn't mistake it as you know, something other than 
dealing with whatever I was dealing with. And I can give you many more examples that are heavier than that and that are lighter than that <laughs> of where this dynamic has played out. Yeah. You have a, an issue. You have to decide if you can be partly in, all the way in, or need to take yourself out. You need to communicate that in some way, uh, not in a way that's clandestine, but not in the way that you're not comfortable sharing. And let people lead and suggest alternatives. And, and the reality is not everyone has this privilege, right? If you're an, an hourly worker and you're the only one for the shift, what if the boss says, if you don't show up, we're going to fire you. Right. And, and so this is the reminder that if you are the leader, don't be that person. You need to lean into, and even if someone shows up on their own because they haven't given themselves this permission and you know that something's off, ask them, do anything and everything you can to give them the grace and space that they need to make the decision that's best for them. Do you need to go home? Do you need to go home early if I can't send you home right away? Do you need to hang out in the back room? Is there anything I can do for you? No judgment, just support. And and then I think over time what starts to happen is when a leader does this, it models the behavior to give people who perceive or in fact do have less authority and less hierarchy and all the things that come along with that, it starts to give them the permission that this isn't just something that the people in charge can do. That it is, it is not only our words that say, we want you to take care of yourself. We want you to show up as your whole self. We want your best self to come to work, but then we want to work you to the bone, you know, leading by example through these times of challenge and then sharing what you're comfortable with, you know, when you can is a way to build a really healthy culture around people who have moments of challenge, trauma, heaviness, and and recognizing that these traumas, these moments can be very personal and intimate and opaque because you don't know what it is, or they can be really obvious and big and broad and macro, and you're, you're blind if you don't assume that a certain group or certain people are going through a difficult time. And so thinking about that, leading with a heavy heart, giving people permission to show up or take themselves out of the game, to give help, to receive help is all more a mark of a modern leader. Mm. And if you're not doing these things, I will tell you, you are an old school leader or you are a product of an old school um, thinking around management and leadership. Sure. No question. I, I just want to remark um, just a bit there because that was such a wonderful, um, powerful, and personal story that you shared, Kat. Um, it, it seems to me that you, in, in, in your situation where you had to take some time to yourself uh, and you let your team know and, and you, you, you allowed them to do what they did and they, they showed up wonderfully. You know, it sounds like you were surrounded by a fantastic team of emotionally intelligent leaders who were able to, you know, kind of extend their own uh, their own sense of uh, grace and resilience. I mean, you you gave them a gift. You, you gave yourself a gift, right? The gift of time to be able to take some time to yourself and uh, and do what you needed to to be in the place you needed to be mentally and um, emotionally. Um, but you also gave your team a gift to be able to uh, be these resilient, emotionally intelligent leaders as well. Yeah, I mean, I I think that's right, and and I also think this doesn't require some extremely radically amazing culture. That simple, you know, human sense of reciprocity, humility, and communication mm-hmm. can produce far more of these dynamics than people might expect. Yeah, yeah. 
You know, in uh, last week's episode, we talked with uh, Tom Peters about extreme humanism, his uh, latest book on excellence. And uh, Tom, of course, is a product of McKinsey. And there was a recent study from McKinsey that looked at the priority of boards uh, from 2020 versus 2019. And resilience was up 16% as a priority of boards in 2020, year over year. And yet, the priorities of culture, of workforce capability, and innovation and growth were down between 7 and 10%. And I wondered, how can you be resilient without focusing on culture and capability and growth? Uh, those, those two things don't seem to square. Are, are boards missing something in this regard? Oh, I think they... They square, not that I'm saying I su- support not <laughs> being those things, but an individual can be resilient and not be focused on others. Well, that's true. That's true. And I suppose as, um, as we think about workforce resiliency, um, particularly in the last year, we've all had to, uh, to uh, exhibit some kind of flexibility and, and powering on in the face of, you know, extreme circumstances. So, um, you know, that, that may come absent culture. Uh, we still expect people to show up and we expect people to deliver. Um, whether or not we're putting an overt focus on things like, like culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. I agree. Well, Troy, you have joined us here on the stage. You have a question or comment for Kat? Well, first of all, Scott, what a voice, man. You've been gifted from above. My goodness. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, And Kat, just uh, I heard you say something that was really interesting. Um, And could you just talk about this more? If we don't tell our stories, someone else is going to make up the story in a sense of what is going on. If you wouldn't. And and what I mean by that is if you wouldn't have explained why things were um, at least communicating with your team, you weren't feeling well or whatever, and things weren't going well, they would have assumed something if you'd just missed a meeting or anything else. And just, I think oftentimes, and I, and I've been married for 30 plus years. There are sometimes when I, by osmosis, I think my wife understands what's going on and I haven't explained anything to her. <laughs> um, and I think sometimes as humans, we do this. Well, they know what's going on. I don't need to explain it. But we all make up stories because that's who, you know, we're storytelling beings. And just talk about that importance of how we communicate. And so someone else knows a story. And then they can, like you said, they can make these decisions and make great human decisions like your team did in helping you out or asking what was going on. I just, I just thought that was a great point. Yeah, I think that... One, I love your example of your wife and congratulations on your, um, on your marriage. I, it is true that people who we work around or live around constantly, often for a long time can interpret what's going on fairly accurately. But to remove from even them the clarity of insight is a shame. Because there are, there's always more to the story than people think. And so I want to honor that there are people we know well and that know us well and that we get comfortable around. And sometimes that actually produces even less communication because we feel like we are 
one mind when we are not one mind. And so that's just a a watch out for me on that and an honoring of that. On the other side, the reality is with the way the world is going, with the gig economy, the freelance economy, the contractor economy, companies growing, buying, selling, you're constantly working with people who don't know you well and do come to very wrong conclusions when they are interpreting your silence, your tone, your absence, your more frequent presence that is unexplained. It is the change in things, the gap between expectations and reality that cause friction and confusion. And then when people don't understand why, they they tell themselves why. And uh, I tell this to the leaders I advise all the time. And the high growth companies that I'm on the boards of, we, we talk about this in one way or another pretty regularly, that if you have big things going on, a fundraise, a new hire, you're acquiring a company, you're building a new product. If you show up as the leader and you're not in a good mood, and that's how people would describe it, they might think something's going wrong with the company when really you just might have a really sick kid and are tired and distracted. And again, it's each person's choice, the detail that they share. But at least saying, hey, I'm a little bit off today, have some stuff going on at home. Um, If you see me, you know, checking my phone extra or going off camera, I'm just navigating some of those things, but I'm still going to be there. Or I've got some stuff going at home and that's why I'm not going to be at this meeting or why we're going to cancel X, Y, Z. Without doing that, people just come to their own conclusions. And sometimes that's not a big deal. It's just what they think and it stops there. Other times, many people on the team come to a similar incorrect conclusion because there is some obvious alternative reality in which your change in tone or presence might be caused by something else big going on. And then it becomes the narrative, the story they're telling themselves in their head. And that affects how they feel about the company, about the leader, about themselves, their security, their psychological safety, um, their employment safety, given all the changes going on in the world. And so it's just really important to respect the human condition and the way all of our brains work. None of us are an exception. And that when we don't know why something happens, we seek to create a story why. Even if we tell ourselves, this might not be the reason, but... I think this is what's going on. Or maybe this is what's happening, right? If we have an illness that's unexplained, we seek to figure it out. We Google ourselves to death. We talk, we wonder, we say, it could be this, it might be this, it's probably not this. Before someone who's an expert helps us realize what it actually is. And that is the perfect example of how we as humans fill our heads with a narrative. I think it's a defense mechanism. I think it's a very human and generally positive thing but if not, if a leader isn't thoughtful about this reality in their relationships, in their teams, in the company, it can become a real blind spot. Um, and, and then some of those narratives can turn into much bigger cultural issues in the company. That's a, that's a great point, Kat. Uh, you know, I think uh, the absence of communication or poor communication is uh, probably the core of at least 93.7% of business problems. And that's a, an estimate. Um, but I think if, if we were just more frank with each other, if we, this is crisis communications 101 too, at a, at a corporate level, um, when something's going on, just acknowledge that you, you have heard of it and you are looking into it for starters. 
right? Because, and I think you mentioned this earlier, Kat, people will automatically form a negative narrative in their mind when we should be assuming positive intent, certainly of people. I don't know if we can go to that extent at, at the company level, but we should assume positive intent with people. And when we, when we allow others a window into what's going on in our lives, it, as opaque as it may be, or as transparent as we're willing to be, we give them the opportunity to demonstrate who they are as a result. Without that, they're locked into these assumptions and, uh, you know, coming to their own conclusions. Well, Troy, thank you for that comment. And, um, you know, I, 30 years plus, boy, that's, that's great. I, I, I think it stands uh, safe to say that uh, you've, you've picked the winner there. So congratulations. And uh, if you have anything else, uh, happy to hear from you. Otherwise, we will uh, we will move on. Well, yeah, real quick. Um, sure. When you said that, you, you said you picked a winner. I, I just wanted to to say that uh, about, uh, and I know Kat had said this about picking a great spouse, and I think I did, but part of that decision was is I continue to pick her every day is I continue to say, wait a minute, this is the person I'm going to spend the rest of my life with. It is a decision I make over and over again, because there are, there are days, uh, (laughs) there are times when I don't feel like that is the person I would really like to be with. But I know deep down inside I've made a commitment uh, that overrides even my feelings at times. Um, And and, and the the connection has become deeper and deeper. Uh, And I just, I, I, I want to commend Kat on, on, on one. Of, I, I mean, in my bio, everybody's got a bio, whatever, whatever they do. And, and I just love the fact that you, you led with, it's my family. It's, it's these four individuals. It's this one that I'm going to be with and these two kiddos. And that's one of the things I list is, is mine. I'm, I, I'm a husband, I'm a father and, 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 and I'm a, and I'm a, and I say, as I'm a proud papa, Nobody can take anything, those things away from me. Those are roles that I get to play. Nobody else in the world gets to play. Um, every, anything that I do beyond that, somebody else can replace it. But those things, I mean, it's just a privilege. And when you said that, um, Kat, it just it, it just warmed my heart because it's like, wait a minute. This woman, uh, irrespective of what she's done, which is really cool, I'm, I, I'm much more enamored with as far as your heart towards your your fellow closest humans in your life. Oh, I love that. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you, Troy. And and I love that concept of, of choosing every day. Um, it, it is a recommitment, uh, whether, whether it's to a spouse or to our colleagues at work. Uh, we, we, every day we show up, we demonstrate how committed we are to that relationship. Well, if you uh, are joining us, we are at the tail end of our talk here with Kat Cole. If you'd like to subscribe to Kat's newsletter, it is called Checking In with Kat Cole. It's available at catcole.substack.com. Kat, we need to get you a, uh, a custom URL there. <laughs> I've got one. I've just got to link it. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, I can tell that, you know, the, the newsletters that you put out uh, are so thoughtful and, and so deep. Um, it, this is not your typical fluffy uh, newsletter type material. It is really something 
uh, to consider. Where, where do you get your ideas from for your newsletter? Just life, business. I mean, I'm typically inspired by the conversations I'm having with founders and leaders and executives and then tie that to experiences in my own career and try to bring forward lessons that are timeless um, but timely and that can be applied at work and at home and are actionable. And so it is literally born out of the conversations I'm having with all of my advisory and board activity and investments and business endeavors and podcasts or conversations. I had a, you know, a room discussion this morning on belonging and creating a sense of belonging and the research um, behind friendliness and belonging and tied that to compensation systems and incentive systems in businesses. And I've made a few notes and it will likely be connected to my next post. And so, um, you know, the, it really is inspired by real time needs and dynamics. Well, I, I love that. And, and Hey, you, you hit the key words there, timeless and timely. That's uh, that's my newsletter. So I'm with you. Well, um, is there anything else you'd like to leave us with before we sign off here? No, I think just my, you know, my pinned tweet, my phrase, you know, which really does connect to resilience, this topic, which is don't forget where you came from, but don't you dare ever let it solely define you. Our truth is in our roots, but our past should not be our anchor. And that, that really does connect to resilience and honoring our past, whether it's good or bad, or which pieces of it are good, which pieces of it are bad or painful, I should say, as all in service to where we're going next. Fantastic. Well, Kat Cole, thank you so much for being with us on Timeless Leadership. Yeah, thanks for having me. Resilience doesn't come purely from experience. It comes from within. It also comes from the people with whom we choose to surround ourselves. By being able to understand them and ourselves, we're at our most resilient. Thank you for joining us and for being an advocate for timeless and principled leadership, whenever and wherever you find it. I'm Scott Monty. Until next time, may you dream more, learn more, do more, and become more. For you are a leader.